Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi everyone, I'm Akresh Gupta Chima, your host for the New Books Network. Today I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Moaz bin Bilal to talk about his book, Temple Lamp, Horses or Banaras, published by India Penguin Classics in August 2022. Moaz is a poet, translator, and academic. His first collection, Ghazal Lama, Poems from Delhi, Belfast, and Urdu, was shortlisted for the Sahitya Academy, Yuva Purashkar. His translation of Fikri Tongsway, Tonsui's partition diary, The Sixth River, was also critically noted. Moaz was the recipient of the Charles Wallace Trust Fellowship in Writing and Translation in Wales and has also just received the Academy Schloss Solitude Fellowship in Writing. He holds a PhD on the politics of friendship in E.M. Forster's work from Queen's University Belfast and teaches literary studies at O.P. Jindal Global University in India. Thank you for joining me today, Maz. How would you introduce this book to our audience? Um, thank you for having me over, Ikra. Uh, Temple Lamp, uh, the copy here, um, it's a long poem on Banaras uh, um, in the form of a Masnavi uh, in Persian, written by perhaps the greatest uh, poet of the 19th century who holds his own against uh, Walt Whitman or whoever have you, Mirza Ghalib, uh, who wrote, uh, was based largely in Delhi and wrote both in Persian and Urdu. Um, it's a poem about Banaras, as the, my translation, uh, the title in the English suggests. Uh, and uh, I think it's an important poem for our time for different reasons. Uh, perhaps I'll get into those uh, as we go on. What made you choose Ghalib for this project? And why did you choose Chiragi there from all of his work? Um, so Ghalib, like I said, I think he's, uh, he's arguably the greatest poet of the 19th century. And I don't uh, say that just uh, as a poet uh, from South Asia, but, but a poet of the world. Um, he uh, He's a favorite of mine. Uh, I grew up uh, listening to him. Um, but he has been um, translated into... English into Japanese into various uh, languages. Um, he's inspired the poetry of uh, poets as far as way as America, including poets such as uh, the famous Adrian Rich, 
um, who has written a, a short collection as a homage to Valib, uh, titled that part of a larger collection, Leaflets, um, where she has a verse, uh, I remember, how is it that your pain um, um, has reached so far, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not being able to recall the exact verse, but uh, how is it that your pain has reached so far away from there you lived, uh, Ghalib, she says. And uh, um, he's a favorite of mine, so he was a, a, almost a natural choice for me to translate, but I was more familiar uh, with his Urdu poetry. And I grew up listening to his Urdu poetry being sung uh, by different singers as well. Um, and this poetry was largely in the form of the Ghazal. Um, his Persian poetry is not as widely known, uh, especially in um, South Asia, where Persian used to be uh, the hegemonic language, uh, the language of commerce and the court language for a good thousand years uh, between the years 900 and the early 1900s. Um, it has now almost disappeared and most of us don't know the language. Um, my, I, I learned a bit of Persian for an academic endeavor at the Iran Culture House in Delhi. And uh, using that, I got into uh, Ghalib's Persian poetry. And uh, I think uh, in South Asia particularly, it's important for us to realize um, that there was this Persian cosmopolis that existed and a kind of globalization within the Persosphere of the world um, from beginning in the Balkans in Europe and coming down all the way to Bengal, um, of which Ghalib was a part, of which South Asians were a part. And uh, we've kind of, uh, we seem to have forgotten that largely. So this uh, translation was a humble attempt to bring that to the fore as well, uh, to, uh, uh, and, and like Ghalib, to, um, to give prominence to Banaras as part of this larger Persosphere as well, um, in, uh, to acknowledge its place in this larger Persian cosmopolis, to realize it, the place it held for a poet like Ghalib um, in, in a global sense, not just a very endemic South Asian sense. Um, there's also, uh, in, in the poem, there's great instances of uh, remarkable cultural hybridity. Um, it's a very witty poem. It's uh, doing some very interesting things in terms of South Asian syncretism um, and uh, how this responds to Orientalist writing on Banaras, how this responds to the contemporary perceptions of Banaras in the Indian national media and through that larger global media, I think is also important. Um, the poem brings to the fore um, a kind of symbiotic uh, Muslim relationship uh, to South Asia that has existed uh, for um, a good uh, a millennium or so. Um, and I think all of those uh, aspects uh, I, I wish to bring to the public uh, sphere of today. Um, so that's why my translation, that's why the selection of this poem, Temple Lamp, um, and uh, Akalip, like I said, is, is a personal favorite. Thank you. So what is the difference between a Ghazal and a Muslimi? Also, how does this Muslimi or this poem compare with Alib's Ghazals and other poems? Right. Um, so uh, a Ghazal is, uh, a Ghazal and Muslimi are two of the genres uh, Ghalib wrote in. He also wrote Qasidas, uh, which are odes. Uh, Masnavis are narrative long poems. Uh, Ghazal is a genre that's... Uh, quite unique and distinct from most Western genres. Um, it's comprised of couplets and uh, usually the number of couplets varies between 5 to 16 or 20, something like that. Uh, the, the upper number is not really fixed, but, uh, but it rarely goes over 20, I mean, at best 30 uh, 
verses or so. Uh, it's a non-narrative form, which is uh, quite unique. Um, I don't think there's a comparable form in the West at all with regards to that. Each couplet in a ghazal is a standalone poem. And uh, in terms of prosody, uh, the ghazal will have a strict meter, very complex meters, Urdu. Uh, so ghazal begins in Arabic, comes to Persian, later comes to India in Urdu as well. And Ghalib wrote ghazals in both Persian and Urdu. Um, so the meters in these languages are quite complex. They're quantitative meters, unlike the qualitative uh, English meter. And um, the ghazal also has... Uh, in the first couplet, the poet sets the meter and the rhyme and refrain pattern. They're both rhymes and refrains um, at the end of the first two lines uh, of the first uh, of, of the ghazal of, at the end of the first couplet. In both the lines, um, they end with the refrain and the refrain is preceded by a rhyme. Um, this rhyme and refrain pattern is repeated in the rest of the ghazal in only the second line. Um, and each share, uh, which it is, which, which the couplet is called in Urdu, and uh, it's called a bet in Persian. Each share is a standalone uh, poem in its own right. Uh, what unites a ghazal is its prosody and its mood. Really, there isn't a longer narrative going from verse one to say the last verse. The last verse, by the way, is called a makta. It has the poet's pen name in it, so it has an interesting feature where the poets uh, refer to themselves uh, in the third person. I have translated some of Ghalib's Urdu ghazals, uh, so I will not read all of it, but perhaps I'll just read uh, a makta, the last couplet, to give an instance, uh, translated uh, makta. My colleague, my fellow drinker, my secret keeper, he is, why I call Ghalib bad, he's of a better world in front of me. Um, so this is just to give one quick illustration about how the makta works. He's referring to himself um, and appealing that he shouldn't be called bad, even though he's a drinker, he's, he's um uh, a Sufi nonetheless. So uh, so the poets refer to themselves, but the overall uh, poem may not have a single narrative arc. In contrast to this, the Masnavi is a narrative poem. It is also comprised of couplets. Uh, the the couplets can range in the hundreds or the thousands even. Um, Rumi's uh, Masnavi Manvi is the most famous Masnavi perhaps of all time. Um, it is a Sufi Masnavi. Um, Recently in South Asia and India particularly, there was a Hindi Masnavi Padmavat that became quite famous because it's a narrative poem about uh, about a couple of historical figures, kings uh, in South Asia. But the, the story is fictionalized and it was made into a film. And uh, so that's also Masnavi. The Masnavi as a form um, is often dealing uh, with heroic narratives or didactic themes. And each couplet can have just rhymes at the end of it. Of course, the whole uh, poem has a fixed meter. Uh, Ghalib in uh, Chiravedev, uh, my temple lamp, he uh, introduces the, uh, the uh, in the ghazal-like manner also a radif, the, the refrain. So there's both refrain and rhyme in Ghalib's uh, couplets. Each couplet has just an internal rhyme. There is no overall rhyme to the whole poem. Um, so that's the Masnavi uh, in contrast to uh, the ghazal. Thank you. So how do you see the relationship between urban ecology and devotional elements in this Masnavi? Khalib's Masnavi about Banaras, I think, couldn't but uh, deal with uh, devotion, Banaras being one of the holiest cities of uh, South Asia. He, in fact, calls it uh, 
in Persian, the Kaaba Hindustan, the Kaaba of Hindustan. Kaaba being uh, the Haram Sharif, the uh, site of uh, the Hajj pilgrimage uh, of Muslims in Mecca. And uh, he seems to think that Banaras becomes the site of devotion, of buying, and not just for Hindus. Uh, and there's a critic, Khushwat Singh, first pointed out that uh, Banara, that Alib does not call Banaras the Kaaba Hinud, the Kaaba of Hindus, but he calls it the Kaaba of Hindustan, um, the Kaaba of the whole region in a sense. And Ghalib himself writes this Masnavi in a manner as if uh, he's paying his obeisance to the city. Um, he uh, keeps the verse count at 100 and 108. And 108 is uh, a holy number in various kinds of Hindu cosmologies, uh, both the Shakta and the Vaishnav traditions, in the Shaivite and the Vaishnavite traditions. Um, the Shaivite tradition and Shiva being the dominant deity of Banaras, uh, the, number, the number of beads in the rosary, the Hindu rosary, the Rudraksh, is 108. Uh, and Ghalib wrote more verses on Banaras. We know this from letters he sent to friends. But he kept the count at 108. So I don't. So I think it was uh, an act of devotion on his part to write this Masnavi. And when he arrives uh, to the city, um, it's not the contemporary Banaras uh, that is cluttered as we see it today. It's a city of ponds and lakes. And it's very green and it's full, full of gardens and forest areas, even probably on the periphery. And we know this from images that we have, and I've included them in my long introduction to uh, the poem. Um, images of, made by James Princep, uh, who was a British uh, colonial officer stationed in Banaras around the years that uh, Ghalib came there. So just two years before Ghalib's arrival in 1826, uh, in 1824, probably, um, have published this book called Banaras Illustrated, where he's included the springs, where we can see that Banaras is uh, a green city. Uh, the river uh, Ganga, which flows there, which is the holy river as well, would have been a powerful uh, teeming river at that time, not dammed up like in, it is in our own times. Um, so I think uh, it's not just the devotional piety of the city that appeals to Ghalib. He also sees it as a green city. He'd been ailing uh, before his arrival to Banaras, he recovered here, recu recuperated here. And I think it's the ecology of the city that's equally important to him. It's also the vivacity of the people here, uh, particularly women. He, he has long exact, uh, ex long sections. Where he's praising, uh, praising the beauty of the women uh, here to the skies. Uh, so all of this is connected for him, I think. And uh, he is a very urban man. He's also trying to pitch uh, Banaras uh, as part of the Persian cosmopolis and uh, extolling it as even greater than many of the other uh, cities of the world, uh, the known world uh, of his at that time. So he says Kashi from Kasha is a half-step journey. Kasha being a city in uh, Iran, uh, an important city of the time. He, of course, calls it the Kaaba of Hindustan, so he compares it to Ma the Makkah. And then in other verses, he compares it to China, and he says it's uh, even better than China in different places. Uh, so taking it uh, into the Silk Route and beyond in that sense. Uh, so those are his urban concerns. Uh, he, of course, compares it to Delhi from where he comes, and uh, he laments about having to leave Delhi. But then he says even Delhi comes to circle around Banaras. And that, again, is an uh, image of the Hajj of the pilgrim coming to the holy site to circle around it. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. So in the book, you cite Abdurrahman Bishnori for his statement that Ghalib's collection of verse is text of divine revelation and share that he compares Ghalib to Kant, Nietzsche, Hegel, and other European writers. 
You also cite a few other Indian writers who know that Ghalib was or is read as a Western poet. Could you elaborate on these comments and comparisons and how do you compare being read as an Indian with being read as a Western poet? I think what is implied there is uh, that uh, in the Indian uh, Perso-Arabic or Urdu traditions, uh, the importance of a poet was recognized uh, by evaluating his presence uh, or or his location or position in the longer uh, poetic tradition of uh, Indo-Persian poetics. And uh, people would focus on... um, the usage of uh, of different phrases and words in a line um, and uh, beauty or aesthetic merit uh, would be judged on these parameters. Um, but once these critics began comparing Ghalib to uh, some of the European philosophers or poets like Rimbaud, uh, what started happening was that uh, Ghalib got extricated from this long and sometimes uh, over-aestheticized tradition of Western poetics. Uh, and Ghalib's humanism and, and the thematic concerns started coming more to the fore. His, not just his humanism, but also his skepticism, his very modern questioning outlook. Um, and uh, he b- began to be uh, valued for uh, his own uh, thematic concerns, his own poetic concerns, uh, and not just, uh, not just the prosody and the poetics. Uh, so I think that's what these critics uh, implied, and I was mostly quoting uh, this major Indian American, I mean Indian primarily critic Shamsur Rahman Farooqi, who also taught in America um, and uh, published from there too. Um, so, uh, so the point that I've just made is really made by him in one of his essays on Ghalib. Um, yeah, does that answer your question? <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, so Ghalib, you know, when we were growing up in Pakistan, we used to read like Ghalib's letter as part of our Urdu curriculum, which was uh, a very fun activity to do for us. And it seems like he has a very eccentric personality. I also love that he claimed to have studied with an Iranian tutor, which you write in the book that in law likelihood was just a mere figment uh, of his imagination. So were there more instances about his life, about his personality that are interesting eccentric that you learned during this process? Um, I learned some. I knew others uh, from even earlier. As you said, uh, Ghalib is very popular in South Asia, so you kind of grow up with him in a way. Uh, so some of uh, the interest, I, I did maybe uh, narrate one or two uh, instances from his life. One that I always uh, remember uh, fondly is uh, how he was uh, called in for almost an inquisition-like situation after the 1857 revolt, which the British called mutiny, and uh, the retributions were being meted out to uh, the Indians from Delhi particularly and elsewhere, who had rebelled against the British. And his one friend, Fazliha Khairabadi, was sentenced to Kalapani, a sentence in the Andamans, a life sentence. His own brother, Ghalib's own brother, who was also schizophrenic, died during 1857 in the violence. And um, his King uh, Bahadur Shah Zafar was, of course, exiled to Burma, at whose court he used to be um, a, a royal tutor to the poet, to the king by then. Um, so he was called in, and the British officer supposed to have asked him, um, "Are you Muslim?" And the British were probably discriminating more strongly against Muslims because the court had been Muslim, and uh, so many of those who were rebelling against them, they felt were Muslims primarily were the more uh, critical enemy. So he was asked, "Are you Muslim?" 
he replied saying that I'm half a Muslim, I drink wine, but I don't eat pork. Uh, so that was him. And, and he's, he's a funny character. He had great humor. Um, he, he, there's some very funny tales about his fondness for mangoes. And he wrote a whole poem to one of his patrons asking them to send mangoes by the crate and not be stingy in sending them. Um, so, um, but, but like, I think all major poets, he was closely invested in, uh, what critically in the West we call self-fashioning now after Greenblatt and Shakespeare's and other self-fashioning, um, so the early incident that you referred to him uh, claiming to have had an Iranian tutor during his childhood is his claim to being uh, um, more Persian and better at Persian than other Indo-Persian poets of his own time. So he wants to, uh, to play this claim to being the greatest of Indo-Persian poets. And uh, he disses everyone else besides himself. He wrote poems and criticism to that effect. Um, so he was constantly trying to craft this uh, persona of himself as this great poet. Uh, he was a great poet, but he was probably uh, fairly insecure in his own life and was trying to work very hard on creating that persona. He was also very active in publishing his work and uh, and uh, very successful at that. And it's that publishing success also that led to his being prescribed in syllabi from very early on. Um, in British syllabi of the time, the colonial syllabus uh, that was being created to teach Urdu uh, to the British officers, but also uh, to Indians. Uh, and he got prescribed there from very early on. So so that's a, a little bit about Ghalib self-fashioning, I think, and also some of the funny incidents from his life. Thanks for sharing these. So in Chiragi there, you honor both the form and content of this Masnavi, what are some challenges of doing this kind of translation work? Um, so you can, in translation, of course, there are bound to be losses, but there will also be some gains. Of course, the biggest gain is to try, which uh, which is what one translator attempts to do, is to make a work available to a large audience in a different culture, in a different linguistic sphere. Um, Sometimes in actual translation, there can be uh, gains of words uh, and phrases and new new uh, coinages uh, for that target language as well. Uh, um, but translation is a complex uh, and demanding job. I, when I first took on this poem, it's 108 verses. So it's a long poem, but it's not a very long poem. So I had thought I would uh, finish this work up in six months. Uh, it took me three years. Uh, so I underestimated the challenge uh, in a big way. Um, the You said I've been faithful to both form and content. I've tried to, but Persian is a very compounded language. And where in Urdu, when I translated Ghalib's puzzles, which I've included in, um, in some, some of these puzzles, I included this poem, my first poem, Ghazal Nama, that you mentioned at the beginning as well. Uh, I was able to be more faithful to the form. I translated each couplet as a couplet. In most poems, I managed to retain at least a rhyme with a meter. In one or two poems, even the rhyme and the refrain. Uh, and this, these were translations from Urdu. But uh, Persian is a much more compounded language, like Sanskrit, like German. And each each line in the original carried much more information, much, many more ideas, many more metaphors. And it wasn't quite possible to translate each couplet into a couplet. So what I've done in terms of prosody is to maintain the balance of the couplet, uh, the couplet being uh, where the first line is an exposition or question, and the second line is a response or an answer, often paradoxical and whimsical and witty. Um, I've tried to cre uh, recreate that balance at least. 
so I have translated each couplet by and large into two couplets. Uh, so for the first two lines from the exposition and the next two, the response, and the balance still hangs together. In one or two places, it's come out in two stanzas of three lines each, and in one or two places, just a couplet each in translation. Uh, but I've not retained the rhymes or the refrains. Uh, so uh, in the per- in the Persian long form, I don't think in translation that was quite possible. Um, so that's about prosody. But with regard to meaning, um, again, I think uh, uh, there's different approaches to translation. So one uh, Hindi translation that I read of this Persian poem as I was working on it, um, followed a form where they translated, the translator had uh, translated each couplet into three stanzas often. And the third stanza was uh, largely uh, uh, the translator's own interpretation. And um, that interpretation uh, was one of the possibilities of the original verse, but uh, definitely not the only one, I thought. So so I didn't agree with that form. So why give just your interpretation? So how I try to translate in terms of meaning is to retain... Um, um, the ideas and words uh, of the original in translation as much as possible and to recreate the possibilities of uh, all the different meanings embedded in the original um, as much as one can. Um, conceptually, sometimes uh, there are terms uh, that one cannot translate, so one ends up retaining them. That's one strategy, although giving too many footnotes is not ideal, but in some places I've had to. Um, in some places, because it's an Indian publication so far, I do hope uh, for an American or Western publication as well from the UK or elsewhere. Uh, but uh, so far, because it's an Indian publication, I've translated uh, key uh, Persian terms into their Sanskrit or Hindi equivalents. So, Ghalib uh, refers to Pashka, Zunnar. These are terms that uh, mean the sacred mark or the sacred thread uh, of Hindus. Um, I have translated them as Janeu and Tilak, sorry, the other way around, Tilak and Janeu, um, because uh, these these words are readily accessible by most Indians or South Asians even, I think. So, um, but if I were to uh, publish this in the West, perhaps I'd retain the Persian original words. Uh, so these kinds of choices, I think, are important and uh, uh, but but complex and one has to uh, think about them carefully. Uh, but uh, but those are some of the challenges I think to retain all the meanings, particularly in poetry, which uh, and and Urdu and Persian poetry tends to be intentionally very ambiguous. Uh, a good poem is definitely one that has multiple meanings in it. Um, some of Ghalib's uh, verses uh, shares uh, just just two lines uh, can have six or seven or even more interpretations. So that's what I try to retain, I think, uh, as well as I can. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so how does this translation compare with your translation of other poets' work? Are there poets that are significantly difficult to translate or that don't like really give you enough room? Um, so among the poets that I've translated, uh, Ghalib, I would say, has been actually the toughest, but that's why uh, that challenge has also been most interesting for me. He's also my beloved poet in a sense. So um, the other poets that I've translated are, in fact, uh, the poet King that I mentioned earlier, Bahadur Shah Zafar. I've translated some of his others. I have translated some contemporary poets. 
uh, a young poet uh, who's my contemporary writes in a, a mixed register between Hindi and Urdu, uh, Sudhanshu Firdaus. Uh, modern poetry I find relatively easier to translate, honestly, because uh, it's often not written in fixed meter, so free verse uh, at one level, because then you can play around more with it in translation, so it becomes slightly easier to translate. Uh, but among the classical poets, uh, at least uh, based on the ones that I have translated, I think Ghalib was the toughest for me. And I've translated other prose uh, writers, Manto and um, other modern ones also, uh, but poetry remains, I think, the toughest and most interesting challenge also. And Ghalib, for me, remains uh, the toughest poet to translate. So what are some things that you think people should keep in mind when they are translating Ghalib's work? Um, I'll have to be slightly repetitive there, I think, uh, because I've already said, uh, I think the most uh, uh, impressive thing about Ghalib is the multiplicity of meaning, the ambiguity that he brings to each of his verses. So I think it's... Uh, quite tough to retain that, but also fundamental to retain that. Perhaps um, for that, I will read out one verse, not from Temple Lamp, but um, from uh, a translation of an Urdu ghazal of his uh, that I have done and included in my um, first book, Ghazal Nama. Uh, it's a very famous shade in Urdu. Uh, uh, I have translated it as, when there was nothing was God, if there were nothing would be God, my being defeated me, had I not been, what would have been? Uh, the original has uh, a lot of different meanings here. I'll try to explicate a few of those and maybe then explain them through my translation here. Uh, so he says, Na tha kuch to khuda tha, when there was nothing was God, uh, na kuch hota to khuda hota, if there were nothing would be God. Uh, so just this first line, maybe I'll, I'll draw a few meanings out of here to explain those first. Uh, this, this at one level, at a very simplistic level perhaps, or the, or the first meaning that comes to mind is that even when there was nothing, God was there. And even when there would be nothing, God would be there. That's, that's the most ostensible meaning. But when you read this in conjunction with the second line, my being defeated me, had I not been what would have been. Uh, so just by being, just by being born, uh, there's a defeat or an end that is met there itself. And if he had not been, he's wondering, if he had not been born, what would he have been? And then if you go back to the first verse, when there was nothing was God, uh, one gets into uh, even blasphemous territory, one gets into Sufi territory. Uh, so he's al it's almost as if he's saying, when there was nothing, and when there was nothing, even he wasn't born, there was only God. So was he God? That's also a possibility that's there. And if there would be nothing, there would be God. So would he be God? So that's at one level is a very blasphemous thought. But at another Sufi level, uh, uh, and if you go to the idea of uh, Sufism, uh, the Sufi idea of Vahedatul Wajud, the unity of being, which certain Sufis like Mansur al-Hallaj proclaimed, he said, An al-Haq, I am the truth. And he was beheaded by the king of his time for saying that, or being considered blasphemous. But it is a Sufi idea. It's a heterodox Sufi idea which says that uh, all being is part of God. And Ghalib is also saying that. And in translation, uh, I have done perhaps retain those meanings by uh, by not giving a personal pronoun there or, or even another uh, third person pronoun. So I've just translated this as that there was nothing was God. Uh, I didn't say there was God even. I said when there was nothing was God, if there were nothing would be God. 
who would be God? I don't say um, my being defeated me. Had I not been, what would have been? Um, uh, so I think those those kinds of uh, insights and that kind of awareness has to be there that you pay clo- pay close attention to Ghalib's different meanings, uh, multiple meanings that he brings to the fore, and try to retain as many of those as possible. Um, if and ideally one should perhaps uh, also, if one can, retain a certain inkling of. Uh, the prosody, particularly of the ghazal form, I think it's very important because um, the ghazal is all of it put together. It's not just meaning. Uh, and anyway, poetry is not just meaning. If it was only meaning, then why would people write it as poetry, as song, as uh, having a prosody? One could write a newspaper article. Um, so uh, I think uh, translators of poetry in general, but Ghalib's poetry in particular, and the ghazal form in particular, have to be... Uh, uh, very clued in into this highly compact, highly rigid, uh, demanding form, um, where uh, creativity happens in uh, while being very tightly bound. But there's great joy in creating newness uh, in that tightly bound form, um, and that's what I try to do in my translations to bring both all those uh, the the multiplicity of meaning, but also the form across. So that would be my uh, two cents to uh, to call it translators. Well. Great, thank you. Are you currently working on any projects? So uh, I'm leaving for the fellowship uh, that you mentioned in the beginning uh, in the next month. Um, and this is in Germany at Stuttgart, uh, the Academy of Solitude. And there I would be working on possibly a long while, I'll be collaborating um, with uh, a Pakistani poet and a documentary maker, Amar Aziz. And together we'd be working on uh, uh, writing a long poem on South Asia. And also we look to translate uh, this uh, Urdu poet who went from India in the 60s to Pakistan, um, John Elia, a very famous poet. And um, so we, we look to translate selections of his work and write a crit- critical introduction to that. Um, and then I, I want to uh, revise my PhD, mono, I mean PhD thesis into a monograph. I have, uh, in fact, an offer from an American press, but uh, I've just not gotten around to revising it since Ghalib. Uh, I got a bit over ambitious with Ghalib here, and I thought I'd finish it in six months, but it's in three years. So that's that's uh, been on the table for a while. I hope to do that as well. Yeah, thank you. Best of luck for the fellowship and for the dissertation, which I would imagine is probably going to be harder. <laughs> than the fellowship herself, speaking from my own experience. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate all your conversation and um, your willingness to share your experience and your knowledge regarding Olive with us. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. I'm Ikrashil Tachima, your host for New Books Network. Thank you.